Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets podcast. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor of the IC. Joining me today in the podcast studio are Mark Robinson, Deputy Companies Editor. How are you doing, Mark? Very well, thank you, Ian. Yeah, busy this week? Uh, yes, as ever. We also have Bradley, our news editor, Bradley Gerard. How are you doing, Bradley? Very good, Ian. Thank you. And over in the control room, we have Alex Newman, our specialist writer. How are you doing? Hi, Ian. And you've been writing a bit for us this week on bonds and also on steel and generally keeping busy. John's on holiday this week. Is he probably glossing some skirting boards at the moment? He's probably in mourning because of West Ham last night, uh, as yeah. are you, I would imagine. I think he has some decorating to do. John, if you're listening, I recommend eggshell for the radiators, satin wood for the shelves, and obviously gloss for the skirting boards. So uh, I don't know if you're with me on that, Mark. For, forget duck egg blue. <laughs> From another time. But Bradley, let's talk about seven days. What have we got in the magazine this week? A bit of a rise in airfares, kind of pushing up inflation. Easter was early this year. Um, at the end, obviously, we just had it at the end of March. Normally, for the past couple of years, it's been kind of mid and late April. So, the first quarter inflation figures look pretty good, and that's because, um, as anyone with uh, you know, sort of children or other or spouses that work in for a school will know that as soon as it's the holiday times, um, airfares go up. That's subject close to your heart. Well, yeah, it is. It is on two on two fronts now. I've got a daughter, <laughs> but yes, um, they basically airfares rose twenty two point nine percent month on month. So. That shows the sort of price rises that happen when um, it is the holidays. And so, yeah, that's helped push the um, overall inflation rate in the UK um, up for the fastest level um, in 15 months. So, obviously, the central bank is rushing to increase interest rates to get a handle on this. Of course, yeah, although today I think it didn't decide to blow any dust off of its machine that would uh, move interest rates up because they're holding them flat, unremarkably. No levers left. No levers left. Maybe maybe someone's removed them. Maybe that's the problem. Indeed. Well, there's an interesting thing about the timing of Easter this year as well, and we've been hearing a lot of this from companies, is that is that a lot of people have actually been going away. And so the retailers will naturally complain about this. But in this particular instance, I think they've actually uh, they've got a case. Because we noticed that, you know, just basic things like commuting into work, you know, London had sort of stripped out for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. It's much quieter. Mm. Okay, one of the big news stories of the week is BP. And uh, Mark, this is something that you've been covering, a revolt among shareholders or yeah. a section of yes, overpay. They're, they're up in arms. And they have been from uh, for some time, actually, in relation to uh, the proposals for Bob Dudley's pay. I think his actual pay rate is staying much the same, but uh, his incentives and pensions have risen dramatically. Um, and this is coming just after one of their you know, worst annual loss in a couple of decades. Well, yeah, I think it was their worst ever uh, annual loss. I, I, I might be wrong on that point. Well, of course, the link between uh, profitability and pay uh, isn't always an equal one because uh, obviously Bob Dudley and other chief executives can't do anything about the the price of crude oil. But uh, isn't that the yeah? Isn't that one of the points you could make against this? Is that in fact he might be managing a business incredibly well in a time of extraordinary? And when we've talked to in previous podcasts about BP and how they're trying to uh, protect um, certain things around the stock and the dividend. Well, yeah, and he's been successful to a certain degree. I mean, he's had a he's had a sort of a, really an unprecedented confluence of problems when when he took over the role as well. It wasn't just um, post Macondo blues, but uh, also he had problems with his TNK partners in Russia. But the the, the main point here, I think, is that um, there's a certain insensitivity. Uh, with the current pay settlement as well, but coming so soon after um, record redundancies at BP too. And it just feeds into the wider narrative. I mean, we've been hearing it for for years now, and uh, BP aren't the only 
uh, game in town on this issue as well. Uh, uh, Persimmon, I think Rio Tinto as well. Um, the director compensation has come up here and, and shareholder bodies are becoming uh, more aggressive and more involved. And we at the IC obviously think that's uh, that's a really good thing, particularly in terms of retail investors. The meeting's going ahead as, as we're producing this podcast. And I don't think any of us uh, for a moment think that the proposals will be voted down. Um, you, you suggested it could be part of a rush to get through generous pay deals uh, ahead of uh, next year where there's going to be binding votes on remuneration. Yeah, that, that was some of the um, uh, changes in corporate legislation that were brought through by Vince Cable in 2013. And it's every three years a binding vote takes place with regard to uh, shareholder pay. That comes in. Um, that comes in next year, and so you know, as I point out, you know, a cynic would suggest this is this is part of uh, BP management strategy to get these large pay rises through um, uh, prior to prior to next year. But I, I mean, I, I just think that what what's interesting about this is that it, it as I mentioned before, it does show. Uh, along with other issues as well, that shareholders are becoming more involved uh, uh, on a boardroom level. And presumably, um, this is being reflected in other sectors as well. Uh, various Sidley analysts have pointed to the fact that uh, director compensation or chief executive compensation is actually pulled back in real terms, but I don't know how true that is. Well, also, I mean, if you look at recently, we've had the co-op chief executive kind of decide that now things are a bit easier, he's going to take a pay cut. I mean, maybe if you know someone like Bob Dudley says, yes, I've got high pay now and things are not very good, but when they're all fine, I'll reduce my pay because it'll be, in inverted commas, easier to run the business, maybe. You know. Don't hold your breath for that pledge. <laughs> no, I'm not, but it just, it just struck me that, you know, that, that's an example of a chief executive saying... Bob Dudley that was had, unusual. Yeah, I think Bob Dudley has actually taken a pay cut as such, but it's just the incentives and his pension that are being topped up to the tune of about seven million or so. Yeah, you have to look at these things in the round. Alex, um, you cover BP now. Um, do you have a particular take on this? Do you think this is just one of those things that grabs a lot of national newspaper headlines, but the company can shake off? Well, I agree with Mark. It's, it's probably a symptom for this wider engagement we're seeing with, with uh, shareholder bodies. I think we've, Mark, you wrote in your piece as well that we've we've sort of long championed any engagement really with you know, between the board and shareholders, which is, you know, which is obviously going to get headlines and and uh, and 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 probably it's probably to the good if we see any you know any improvement in, in corporate governance standards. Yeah, whether, I mean, whether 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 you know the pay package is is too much is is probably a, a case of moral equivalence. Well, it's more or less trebled, I think, from his his first year there, and he hasn't been back and well, hasn't been the job uh, for that long as well. Longer term subscribers will remember one of our former contributors, uh, Alistair Blair, and Al- Alistair was a champion of uh, uh, sh- shareholder rights, specifically the 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 UK's vast army of uh, uh, nominee shareholders, effectively. And even though private shareholding levels have dropped appreciably. When you take into account the number of nominee accounts, there's an awful lot of private investors out there who don't have any uh, voice, any voting rights, and that's something that the government is addressing, but it hasn't uh, addressed it adequately uh, at this point. And that is a subject I'm sure we'll re- return to, something that a few of the people on the task feel quite strongly about. Talking about shareholders um, that want to take the company to task, Premier Foods is a good example at the moment. What's the latest on this, Bradley? 
Premium Foods share price um, sort of rocketed a few weeks ago and it's um, fallen back to earth, that's for sure, this week. So basically McCormick, which is a US uh, spice maker, I think they're responsible for the Schwartz brand of spices we might be used to seeing in our supermarkets. They actually made three bids in the end to buy uh, Premier Foods. And as we were discussing it last week, um, Premier Foods said, we're going to go away, we're going to talk constructively now with McCormick, we're going to show us the, show them uh, details around our pension scheme and material contracts and engage constructively with them, which is what shareholders wanted, um, and try and get them up to a higher bid. Yeah, which, which in a way they kind of did. So I suppose they were partially, they were in effect true to their words. But when they first rebuffed uh, McCormick, um, the 60p bid, which was, I think, McCormick's second approach, um, there were some shareholders who were saying you know, they really wanted uh, the board of Premier Foods to engage with McCormick. And they were worried that wasn't being done properly because on the same day Premier Foods said it hadn't accepted the McCormick offer, they had agreed uh, a deal with Nissin Foods, which is a Japanese uh, company. And Nissin had also taken a 17% stake in the company. So obviously some shareholders are a bit miffed because you can't really claim as a board that you're you know, all ears to a, a, a complete takeover if at about the same time you've just agreed a stake sale of 17% and a commercial agreement to sell your products in other geographies. So. Uh, now they've had that, they've had those uh, conversations, but what's happened now? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the board of Premier did kind of respond a bit to the criticism, did say we would, we will talk to McCormick and they did um, actually show their books to McCormick and in the announcement by the US group they said, you know, this was done in in sort of you know good spirits and everything but McCormick just feels now that it wouldn't be able to offer a price that the board of Premier Foods would accept and also deliver value for its as in McCormick's shareholders so McCormick's decided to step away and yesterday uh, which was Wednesday um, the shares dropped um, as much as 27 percent so they recovered a, a small bit of that by the end of the day but Another another AGM to look forward to. I think someone, uh, Gary White, uh, Charles Stanley, made that point to me on Twitter. Although that AGM's not till Ju- July, I believe. So, but yeah, that should be another spicy one. Yeah, it should be another spicy one, or without the spice maker involved. But yes, um, it will be key, I think, to see how people um, take what Premier has to say, because uh, there was the potential for a big takeover there, a big um, take on, as you say, about the pension liabilities, which are very big at Premier Foods. So the big question is whether this tie-up, the strategic tie-up with Nissin and the markets it opens to them, is really going to deliver what management say it's going to deliver, and would be better than you know the takeover for uh, by McCormick for the shareholders. Yeah. Well, exactly, and also just. Sort of like maybe sort of a well, very anecdotal sort of um, bit of information. But me and uh, Dom in the studio over there were talking before the podcast, looking at all the Premier Foods brands, and you just kind of think, well, as a as a shopper, like how how much sort of longevity do those brands have? Like some of them seem a bit sort of targeted at maybe a slightly older consumer, which isn't a problem. It's the grey pound. Well, exactly. I mean, the grey pound is quite strong, but there's that. But I I guess, yeah, I guess shareholders will really want to see the benefit of this Nissin Foods deal, the benefit of leveraging Nissin's presence in other geographies. And I guess that's going to be key to pushing the Premier Foods share price up. We'll keep our eye on that. Uh, Other big news, more generally for our readers this week, uh, are on proposed reforms from the uh, finance. Conduct Authority. So, what are the major measures that could impact on the companies that come to market? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, so the SCA is looking at it, produced this paper this week, and it kind of wants to, um, it, its aims are very, very uh, admirable. It just depends how it will actually be able to implement it. So, it wants the IPO process to be a lot more sort of transparent than it currently is now, because often what happens is 
one broker, maybe two if there's joint brokers, have full access to the company information on which they then create research and obviously there's an argument that the SCA makes that this research is likely to be biased because um, if you're the broker of the shares the chances are you're probably going to say buy first out when it when it initially lists and you could argue there's nothing wrong with that because um, you know you could argue the broker wouldn't take on the business if it didn't think the company was a good one but there are calls really from the SCA to make um, more information available to more brokers and also to stop things like um, banks kind of or you know brokers that have also lending businesses kind of enticing companies to list with them by sort of suggesting they could do multiple services for them because that's arguably not very fair against a broker who can only broke the shares sort of thing so there are those those things that the SA wants to make sort of more a level playing field of yeah so I mean we can all agree that greater transparency around these things would be beneficial to people like our readers um, in terms of the information that's out there but our readers won't be so happy if um, this leads to fewer IPOs because there isn't that opportunity for banks to offer ancillary services um, and it's just less um, of an attractive proposition to bring companies uh, to a kind of public flotation. Well, exactly. And actually, Theron, who wrote the piece, um, he, he says that the analysts at PwC estimated proceeds from UK floats halved um, in value to $1.8 billion in this first quarter of this year. So um, that was around... Uh, the suggestion is around Brexit fears that people are putting off listening because of that. Um, but yeah, of course, if costs rose, which they maybe they might have to to kind of implement some of these um, desires the FCA has, then that could be an impediment perhaps or a disincentive um, to the amount of companies that choose London as a listing. It's, it is interesting, though, that we have two big stories about a company transparency, ultimately. Uh, there are also stories about skewed incentives as well, essentially. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Okay, well, let's talk about bonds. Bonds being the cover uh, this week, how to make bond investing pay, uh, especially at a time where equity income in certain sectors that used to be core income sectors has taken a hit. Um, we know that our investor, our readers are increasingly looking at things like retail bonds and other uh, other bond securities. I'm not going to talk in total about the uh, feature because um, our personal finance podcast I think is going to pick up on it. Uh, but Alex, who's in the pod today, uh, wrote about retail bonds as part of this wider bond feature. Alex, what what we're we seeing in retail bonds? It's been a bit a, a quiet market at times, but there's been a recent—I wouldn't say a flurry—but there's been a couple of issues. What are the, what's the health of this market at the moment? Well, um, it's healthy in that there's demand. There's certainly, as you said, a lot of a lot of investors are keen to to hold some form of bond in their in their portfolio, be it through a fund or through Orb, which is the order book for retail bonds in London, which is a way of investing in in corporate retail bonds. Like you said, yeah, there, there's been a, a, a dwindling in the number of issues. So it peaked in about 2011, 2012, when blue chips and large corporations were going to the market. This was a good source of financing for them. There are other alternatives available now. Bank lending's probably come back for, for the blue chips to a degree. And as such, you, you're not like, likely to get the sorts of companies which issued in those years issuing now. But as you said few bond issues so far this year. We've had Burford Capital, which um, many of our listeners will be uh, familiar with. It's a very interesting uh, AIM-listed company. Which, Litigation yeah, finance. It's, yeah, so they provide finance for um, for effectively on, you know, long-running and expensive litigation cases. They went to the, the bond market in 2014. They've, they've come back and they're, they're trying to raise money through, through, through a retail, retail bond issue at the moment. We've had a charity bond uh, for the Charities Aid Foundation, 
um, which was very, very successful, incredibly oversubscribed, raised £20 million pounds, uh, for the CAF. And that's, um, that's quite an interesting model and perhaps something we'll be seeing more of. So investors who don't mind uh, taking slightly slightly less less of a premium coupon in the, in the case of the CAF bond it's 5% and you know you can you can get a, a slightly higher return but you might think um it's for a good cause this you know I'm investing in something which is 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 really worthwhile and I'm going to get paid for it in the process so if, that might if, be a, more of a theme mm. yeah thanks if, if you want a slightly uh, more well-known name or a company you think might be around for longer you've, you've picked up a couple of potentially more reliable t- uh, tips as uh, not a really a tip but a, a bond a retail bond that you could invest in yeah t- tell us about the ones you've picked out yeah so um i've just mentioned a couple a couple of um uh, uh bonds that are that are listed there's over 100 corporate uh, corporates which are listed on orb one one i think it's quite quite interesting. Is Tesco? So obviously they've cut the they've cut their dividend. Had very disappointing results uh, this week, but they're committed to pay paying a six percent uh, yield for the. Uh, I think it's until twenty twenty nine when the when the the bond matures. So okay, it's very hard to forecast what the supermarket sector is going to look like in in uh, in thirteen years times time. But we can be fairly assured that um, Tesco is going to be around for the foreseeable future. They're going to be you know they're going to be paying their uh, paying their their coupon a slightly more risky choice might be uh, there's a few oil oil companies listed on on orb enquest currently trading uh, below you know below 50p in the pound for their bond if they make it through if they survive if oil prices rebound this year and they're able to hang on to their cash flows um, then you know then there's a the prospect in five years if you buy that bond of doubling your money and getting paid 12 percent uh, of your investment a year to do so, uh, so that's a, that's a much more risky proposition. But um, but it, it just goes to show Orb has uh, both you know sort of risk averse and and sort of risk content. Uh, uh, bonds on offer. What's the larger challenge for this market? Is it that although there is that that demand that you've talked about from our readers and and others, is it that companies don't really want this slightly volatile source of funding to be part of their funding base? Uh, you know that they won't choose to use retail bonds, or you know they'll uh, they'll choose them less and less. I don't know if it's necessarily about volatility. It's more, it's more that there are just better options out there out there for uh, companies looking to to you know to to raise money. Um, with the revival of bank lending, yeah, sectors. indeed, yeah. So, um, and uh, I, I think one one issue might be, and and Stephen Wilmot, uh, uh, your predecessor, wrote about this uh, a couple of years ago. That you know, if there is a collapse um, of one of these companies, you know, there's a few the few companies there which are which are almost I mentioned Enquest. They're almost priced uh, expecting insolvency at some point. Not quite, but you know, it might get there if if uh, oil remains at forty dollars a barrel. Um, if there is a collapse of one of these com- uh, companies, then that will be the true test of the retail bond market. So, what happens in the insolvency process? Um, whether that's like to scare investors away, but really, I mean, it just represents uh, a safer, um, more reliable income stream for investors wanting to diversify their, their portfolio. Chris Dillow makes uh, a point in, in the magazine this week as well that there, there aren't really enough quality paper assets out there at the moment. That's one school of thought. And just uh, a side issue is that for, for a number of years, uh, local authorities in, in the UK have been pushing to uh, get more powers to, uh, to issue bonds uh, similar to the municipal bond market in, in the United States. And while obviously that market has got 
real problems. There, there is a school of thought which suggests that uh, as uh, in terms of a way of funding and a way of uh, expanding that market, that could be the way forward. You know, it, we, we're talking about uh, government back debt there. And Chris makes the point that this is uh, what's holding back uh, economic growth uh, in uh, Europe at the moment. It's just there aren't enough quality paper assets out there. Okay, there's plenty more in that feature and there's there's more on, uh, as Alex says, um, bond funds, there's a big section on bond funds which wants to pick and also some of the risks that are involved in, in uh, fixed income investing. As we were talking a little bit about uh, resource companies and uh, dividends, I'm going to take us to the results section to talk about Central Asia Metals. Uh, There's actually a copper miner, uh, Alex, that you did the results of this week. Now, this has bucked the trend of some of the other miners in that it's keeping its dividend um, as it is promised to do. Yeah, so Central Asia Metals is an anomaly in London. It's committed to a dividend policy that no one could match, really. They they say they will pay out 20% of revenues, I mean, for, mo- for most uh, companies, it's, it's uh, some factor on cash profits or EBITDA. But for Central Asia uh, Metals, they have this uh, very peculiar asset, which is a copper recovery plant in Kazakhstan. Uh, it basically means they're, you know, they, they can produce copper for next to nothing, and they can, they're just throwing off, throwing off cash. So we tipped them a few weeks ago. We were pretty convinced that they were going to be able to hang on to their dividend. Although copper prices have, have fallen, they upped the dividend uh, payment to almost, uh, I think it was 26% of, um, of, uh, of revenues. And that's, that's, you know, that's now given an enormous yield, certainly bucking the trend for the uh, sector. Is that sustainable in the longer term? Is that the million dollar question? It's hard to tell. Yes, I think it is. It's it's sustainable in that. Um, uh, so we can look at the the track record of Central Asia, which they've just been consistent um, consistent payers of the dividend, even though since two thousand twelve, when they first went into operations, uh, copper price has been falling precipitously. Depending on who you speak to, there's some indication that the copper prices may start to bounce back at some point next year. I met with a company a couple of weeks ago, and they they weren't concerned at copper copper at current copper prices, you know that they're going to be unable to pay the dividend. The longer term question is, can they find an asset comparable to the Conrad mm. uh, recovery plant? Probably not, but um, that's a that's probably a longer term longer term issue. And you also wrote up uh, Amerizor Resources uh, this week, South America based explorer. Uh, what, what's the latest on that? Is there any was there any kind of big shocks in this year's results? Uh, not uh, not shocked so much. I mean, for, for Amerisa, they they took an uh, an interesting decision at the the uh, back end of, of 2015 to cut production quite quite radically. They're hoping for they they were hoping for a, a pipeline uh, in between their their Platanillo field um, and uh, Ecuador, so it's a cross border pipeline between uh, Colombia and Ecuador to be completed they didn't want to be selling oil uh, when they were you know their cost profile was higher so they were happy to wait it's impacted the shares as has the oil price inevitably but the results uh, you know seem to be bearing uh, you know sort of bearing fruit and uh, production should start to ramp up their forecasting this year and uh, and with it hopefully cash flow yeah, I think I think it's it is a it's a brave decision by management and the right one as well. Another point making uh, worth making is that they they produce very high quality crude as well. So it seems uh, perverse that they'd be selling onto the markets uh, when oil prices are depressed and also when they're having to chuck the stuff out. I think uh, it's uh, it's a long term view by management and all strength to them. 
Okay, uh, let's talk palm oil, uh, as we were doing earlier, actually. But uh, we had a result um, from uh, MP Evans this week, uh, that's in this week's magazine, uh, which uh, got quite a lot of clicks online, actually. It was very popular. I'm not sure because it had palm oil in the headline or because a lot of people invest in MP Evans. It's my amazing prose here. Oh, perhaps it's Bradley's excellent analysis. But what's the latest on this company? Yeah, um, it's an interesting one. So, as you say, um, MP Evans is predominantly um, involved in the production of palm oil, um, which is a, a widely used ingredient in many things. It also can be um, controversial because, obviously, that there are instances where there's deforestation going on to plant the palm oil plant. Um, that's not to say MP Evans you know, is anything to do with that. Um, it's very careful and sustainable in its um, supply of palm oil. Um, but there was a big drop in palm oil price last year that's kind of hammered this producer. Yeah, it didn't help last year. The uh, The prices fell to about $573 um, a tonne at the end of December. Um, and when you compare that with an average of $821 per tonne in 2014, you kind of get an idea of just how much the price of that commodity fell. Um, it was pushed down by the fact that there was um, a lot of... Um, uh, sort of similar oils in production so th- things like rapeseed oil and mineral oil um were in sort of yeah, great great supply basically which pushes down the price of palm oil because their uses mm. um can be sort of they can be used in fairly similar products and um things like biodiesel as well um but already in 2016 there's been a massive jump in the price of palm oil almost by about a quarter um so that's partly because the el nino effect right yeah exactly yeah management sort of said that um the El Nino effect, which has caused like difficult um, growing conditions for a lot of palm oil producers, means that um, a lot of the smaller scale companies who produce palm oil that probably are not listed and maybe more privately owned ones um, may have sort of curbed their production at the back end of last year. Um, and that there's that MP Evans is saying that will kind of lead to a bit of a constraint in supply um, in 2016, and therefore should help the price continue to recover. I mean, as I say, it's recovered an awful lot in 2016 so far, but there is suggestion that it could keep going for a little while. There was a there's always been an interesting uh, correlation between uh, palm oil prices and the price of uh, crude oil as well, and. The point that you uh, touched upon previously is that a number of the substitutable oils are, are used um, in the production of bio uh, biodiesel. Of course, when you get the oil price slump, more and more of these uh, supplies end up back on the market, and uh, and there we have it. It is an interesting. Uh, it's always been very popular with our readership. I, I know that for a fact. A lot of the companies that were listed performed very well initially after flotation and for some time afterwards, and there's been. Uh, uh, a high degree of consolidation within the industry, uh, but it has had its problems. And I suppose it's one of the few ways, if you're looking at uh, the UK market as well, that you can get uh, direct exposure to the uh, agricultural sphere. Yeah, I mean, there aren't that many companies listed in London that are, are focused, you know, predominantly or exclusively on palm oil. I think there are uh, less than a handful, I think. We were talking about this the other yeah, day. Yeah, I think New Britain's gone now. There was, a, there was a, at one stage, there was about seven or so. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's about three or four now. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, product, an interesting ingredient. Um, I said it can have its uh, critics, but um, yeah. It's, I uh, think it's, the, uh, the, the largest end user uh, is Unilever, which accounts for about 7% of global demand. Really? I believe. That's probably true. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) 
facts of the day. Talking of, as we were just before, about what kind of weather impacting on production, well, Walker Greenbank is another result that you had this week. And we found out from this uh, interior furnishings group that the, the damage done by the uh, the storms uh, up in uh, Cumbria or Lancaster, where it has its um, factory, um, it was covered by insurance. And we've had kind of a little bit, a bit of a boost in the result, but then at the same time, uh, some drop in revenue. How are they dealing with that problem? Yeah, exactly. As you say, um, not the problem of El Nino, which is dry conditions, <laughs> but wet ones uh, up in the north at the back end of last year. So, um, yeah, Walker Greenback, which is an interior furnishings uh, producer, sort of wallpaper manufacturer and um, fabric printer. Yeah, their Lancaster-based factory was flooded, um, but they have they were insured, and so they've got a £1.4 million payout, which uh, helped push their um, adjusted pre-tax profits up about 10% to nearly £9 million. So that obviously helps give, I suppose, a fairer reflection of how the business actually performed um in terms of um, capacity at that factory now, they're back up to just a bit over eighty percent capacity, um, and the rest of the um, the rest of the work that they're not able to do in the factory right now, um, they're actually outsourcing to third parties. So um, the chief executive said to me that the the machine that um, basically does that sort of seventeen percent's worth of work at that factory um, is either going to take five months to repair or it'll take them five months to find a new one in about five months they should be doing the work again but in the meantime they're outsourcing it so effectively their capacity is back but on their own premises it's not quite fully there yet and I think there's a video on our website where um, Julia Bradshaw one of our previous writers actually went to that factory right yeah that's true was it yeah. that exact factory or one of I the... think it probably was actually yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's a um, we've maintained the recommendation as well and even though they're going through this they've got this hurdle at the moment they've been so well run operationally down through the years it won't be a surprise if they come through the other end on this one well exactly and i think also part of the reason for keeping the recommendation is that you know they've they've got net cash they're pretty cash generative and um it just kind of seems that the the market for interior furnishing that they're directed at is going to be quite robust even if we start to see a cooling in the sort of amount of growth of house house prices in the housing market the the consumer that they're aiming at is the the top end consumer who's probably going to keep buying property and keep doing it up every now and again so their their clientele is potentially a bit more um sort of willing to keep spending on this type of thing and a good example of when insurance can come in handy as well absolutely um a couple of results um harriet russell who wrote the results is not actually here she's busy uh, covering debenhams and jd sports today and that those uh, results analyses will be in our friday company's email there is a new company's email quick shout out to that so if you go on the my account web uh, section of our website you can just click a box and you'll receive a, a twice weekly company's email um which will be constituted of all of our analyses and the kind of things we talk about in this podcast. Very so handy if you're in a hurry. Yeah, exactly right. In your inbox, Wednesday or, and Friday morning. Or in a laundrette as well. Or, or in a, a laundrette. Yeah, while you're waiting, while you're on the big spin. But I, we should mention Tesco and WH Smith, which results and analyses are in this uh, week's edition. Um, WH Smith, the interesting thing there was um, that the high street is going quite strongly. Uh, Bradley, this is a result that you had a little look at as well. But it, it seems here that um, the fact they have um, these post offices within the stores and they're going to have more of these is actually pulling more people into the high street and actually although flat um, revenue is not that impressive when it comes to a kind of high street wh smiths that has been quite um, encouraging for investors 
Yeah, exactly. As you said, the, the post offices are a big draw. Um, it already operates 107 post offices within its stores and um, one another 61 contracts. So it might seem a bit sort of parochial, I suppose, but um, post offices are really quite important to a lot of people these days. Still, obviously, people do send, and um, with the actual post office themselves sort of closing a lot of small branches around the country. I suspect W. Smith has seen this as a quite a uh, you know, an astute way to get people into their um, shops. I mean, much like, I guess, the supermarkets use cheap petrol to get people into their stores. I mean, it's probably a fairly, fairly similar thing and makes very good sense, I think. And if you go into WH Smith, it, it is quite clear the investment they've put into their stores. What is also performing in, uh, strongly, uh, as it has been, is its travel segment. So this is shops that it has in airports and train stations. And funnily enough, hospitals falls within its travel section, which, uh, I don't know, just travelling through, I suppose. <laughs> Doing a little scuttlebutt in the office uh, yesterday and uh, Harriet Russell brought this fact up the fact that that's how she uses it just as a travel a medium on her travels and that's probably true for a lot of people as well personally i i haven't stepped into one in the last 15 years uh, and also tesco uh, we should uh, mention it had a strong fourth quarter alex was saying earlier disappointing results i think what the market was reacting to was was the outlook uh, that was given by the, the tesco boss uh, where he said kind of challenging conditions food price deflation all the things that have been threatening them might continue to do so and also they will have to continue to invest in the recovery uh, which generally means a price investment which is uh, um, a bit of a synonym for lower um, prices. So, um, yeah, t- but at the same time, Tesco actually had quite a strong Q4. So, uh, like for like sales, although they were flat over 2015, they actually rose 1.6% in the fourth quarter, which is pretty impressive. One of the, things, the points that Harriet makes in the piece is that Tesco has been priced for a recovery and the share price has grown in 2016 quite substantially. So, it might be that people will think, oh, they've got some worries about the future of the recovery. It also might be some profit taking for people that are invested yeah, it could at the be a time of Dave Lewis. Could be just talking it down deliberately as well at this stage. And he did a good job when he came aboard of the kind of kitchen sinking, didn't he? And and this yeah. would kind of be true to form in that respect of trying to manage, yeah, manage expectations. Exactly. I think that's probably what he is doing at this stage because there is certainly seems to be some operational improvements in the in the final quarter of last year and leading into this year too. Also, if he's too bullish, I suppose people might suspect he's going to return the dividend very quickly, and he might not want to do that straight away. So, drastic yeah. Dave doing well. Drastic incremental improvements <laughs> <Yeah>. to sales. <laughs> okay, well, there's plenty more in the issue this week. Uh, there's a really uh, touching obituary to a former Investors Chronicle editor, Gillian O'Connor, by Philip Ryland. Um, there's a good property matters in there, talking about housing associations and all the usual good stuff. Alex is got, talking about steel. There's the steel sector focus. There's a video of Alex actually talking about that on our website. Um, and James Norrington had another look at the 10 asset strategy, all that and more for £4.70 in all good news agents. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.